Thanks for joining us. I'm Susan Page of USA Today, sitting in for Diane Rehm. The U.N. says fighting in Aleppo, Syria, leaves two million without water. A suicide bomber in Pakistan targets lawyers, killing more than 70 people. And 50 Republican national security experts say Donald Trump puts the U.S. at risk. Joining me for the international hour of our Friday News Roundup, Matthew Lee of the Associated Press, Elise Labatt of CNN, and Anton Gutman with Channel One Israeli News and The Forward. Welcome. Nice Thank to be you. here. We invite our listeners to join our conversation later in this hour. You can call our toll-free number. It's 1-800-433-8850. Send us an email to drshow at wamu.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Matt, let's start with the news out of Thailand just this morning. Southern Thailand struck by a series of bomb blasts apparently directed at tourists. We know at least four people have been killed, dozens wounded. Do we know who's behind the attacks? Well, not yet. Um, and the most likely uh, culprits in this case are these uh, southern insurgents, this M- Muslim insurgency separatists who have been fighting for a low level, at a low, very low level, with the kind of random bombings and that kind of thing for decades now. Um, the fear, of course, is that these people may have become even further radicalized. What they've been pushing for, some of them, is to secede the, uh, the states that are close to Malaysia with, uh, to, to, to become part of Malaysia. Others want just flat-out independence. Um, but, of course, the fear is that uh, it could be somehow linked to uh, a broader uh, Islamic State type of, uh, uh, type of motive. And uh, it's really, you know, it hits the Thai economy, the tourism industry, which is a mainstay of their economy and has been resilient even after all the political unrest that they have had um, with a coup, uh, many coups actually over the past uh, past decades. So the, the fear is that this is really going to hit the tourism industry hard. Uh, at least how significant do you think? How closely should we be watching this? Well, right now, police are ruling out any links to terrorism. But as Matt said, there is a concern that, you know, a lot of times when some of these Muslim groups that have more local grievances, um, this is what, you know, groups like ISIS have been able to prey upon to give them resources, to give them strength and to have some, you know, kind of larger bona fides. The concern, obviously, is that they become further radicalized and they get some support. So I think right now it's it's more of a local thing. But, you know, if you look at, you know, most of the um, targets, you know, this is far from the usual conflict zone. The targets are usually aimed at you know, security and government forces. So the fact that they're going after tourists is very concerning. Natan, here's a, here's a question from a listener, Beverly, from Barbersville, Virginia. She writes, I have heard unsubstantiated reports of barrel bombs full of chlorine gas being dropped in Aleppo, Syria. Have those reports been substantiated, and who's dropping the bombs? Well, we've seen reports uh, in the recent week. Um, if anyone is dropping um, these uh, barrel bombs, it's the Syrian government that is trying um, uh, to defeat the, uh, the opposition forces in Aleppo. 
And we've seen conflicting reports. Um, people on the ground spoke about uh, symptoms that seem to be very similar to those of a chlorine uh, a bomb, people having difficulty breathing. Several people uh, died um, from these bombings. Um, international bodies have yet uh, to confirm that this was actually uh, um, this type of a bomb. And of course, if it is, it is significant because, uh, of course, uh, um, using chemical weapons in this uh, um, war theater would be a, a war crime. The UN envoy for Syria said that exactly that, that it would constitute a war crime. But we have both sides of the conflict, Matt, accusing the other of using chlorine gas. Do they both have credibility? Who do we believe? Well, it's very difficult to know who to believe in this kind of uh, situation. Certainly when this conflict began, the opposition, the, the, the rebel forces did not have access to this kind of thing. But it is possible um, it is not beyond the realm of the unthinkable that they could have captured some and started to use it. That said, I, if, in fact, it was chlorine and uh, these barrel bombs were dropped, it's almost certainly uh, the government, which has the air power. That's right. The the rebels, you know, you talk to the U.S. about whether, who, you know, the Russians are claiming that it's the opposition, the Syria, the regime is claiming it's the opposition, and, and you know, the admin, Obama administration kind of laughs and says, well, you know, with what air power? Um, so if they are barrel bombs, um, and, it, and it, let's just be honest, it's also against rebel-held areas. So some of these areas in Aleppo um, have been targeting, you know, civilians in rebel-held areas. And this is the larger issue about, uh, you know, the siege of Aleppo that's been going on for more than a month. And these air these airstrikes, whether it's Russian or the regime, are targeting hospitals. Um, just in the last month alone, you had this letter um, by some of Aleppo's remaining doctors that are on the ground saying 42 attacks in the last month on hospitals. That's one every 17 hours. And they're really saying, you know, enough dithering by the international community. We don't need your sympathy. We don't need your tears. We need your help. So will they get help, Natan? Is anything going to happen? Well, uh, yeah, I think that letter was very powerful. The letter that was sent to the White House basically saying, we don't want your prayers. We need help on the ground. And the response from uh, the administration, which uh, seemed to be almost dismissive, saying, yes, we we condemn uh, um, the siege, we condemn the the Syrian forces, but basically we're going to do nothing about it. In recent days, we, we have seen a breach of the siege. So potentially there is an opportunity to get uh, humanitarian aid into Aleppo. Um, the problem is that no one can be sure right now that there really is a safe corridor because even though there is an opening right now, um, Syrian forces and Russian forces can bomb whenever they want and there is no promise that um, convoys can come in safely. And there is a Russian proposal on the table for this daily break in bombing for a few hours to, to allow this uh, help, but no one seems to take, to take that right now as a credible offer. What, what do you think the Russians are up to, Matt? Well, I think they're trying to deflect uh, as much as they can uh, criticism that's being uh, directed their way by saying, hey, look, well, we can't – it's the rebels' fault that this is going on and uh, that this is not over. They're continuing to fight. But we do have – we, the Russians, do have sympathy and uh, for, for the civilians who are there. Uh, that said – you know, three hours a day, the U.N. says, no, that is not nearly enough. The Americans say, well, you know, anything is better than the situation is right now, and we would welcome it. But for it to truly work and for there to truly uh, 
for, for, for the people of the civilians who are left in Aleppo to get the aid that they so desperately need, it's going to have to be more than just three hours a day. Uh, Elise, even absent the issue of chlorine gas, the situation for folks who live in Aleppo is increasingly desperate. It is so bad, Susan. And, you know, these doctors in this letter warn that if you don't get some um, help, some aid in right now, if you don't break the siege, all the medical supplies, all the food will be out in about a month. The medical care will be completely um, gone. 300,000 people, they're warning, could be left to die. Doctors do not have diesel fuel to run generators. They don't have medicine. They don't have, you know, antiseptic. It, this situation is so dire. These people do not have clean water. They don't have food. They don't have medical care. And this is what the rebels are trying to do to just at least break the siege to get some aid in. Forget about beating back the regime. They just want to, right now, at least break the siege to get some aid in. And this is what you know, the Internet, these doctors and the international community are, are looking at right now about how to break the siege. These people are saying, listen, the inaction of the international community, really, they bear responsibility for what's happening. And in let, let, let's remember that the mere threat of this kind of siege in Libya on Benghazi when Gaddafi threatened to, to do something like this was what propelled the U.N. to pass the resolution that led to the... Uh, to the NATO bombing of it. And now in Syria, we're seeing that threat happen. It's come come to reality and nothing. Why the difference in the response? Well, I think there's a big fear um, from the, the United States, from its uh, allies, that uh, it would get drawn, they would get drawn into a, uh, a broader land conflict um, eventually against the uh, the Islamic State, which is what the Islamic State wants. You know, we have been talking about the Syrian civil war for several years now on the International Hour of our Friday News Roundup. So, Natan, what's the status of peace talks aimed at ending the civil war itself? Well, there, there is no status right now for, for these uh, peace talks, and, and there doesn't seem to be any horizon for that um, uh, currently because... Uh, um, if anything, the rebels feel that they may have a chance of, of uh, uh, making some headway in Aleppo further down the road. There is some success in the in the battle against uh, uh, the Islamic State uh, in, in the Raqqa area. But in general, um, the forces on the ground are now dictating the, the situation, and the diplomatic efforts are pretty much on hold. Does John Kerry, the Secretary of State, plan to do anything, Elise? Is there anything he could do? Well, he's trying to get this you know, kind of agreement going with the Russians, where if they can team up, share intelligence on targets to go after ISIS, that would be something that the Russians are looking for. That would be in exchange for the Russians not only halting their own bombing, but halting the Syrian Air Force. And, you know, they haven't been able to come to agreement. And the administration says that it's not going to make an agreement with the Russians while the siege of Aleppo is going on. So that is even stalled. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll go to the phones and take some of your calls and questions. You can call us at 1-800-433-8850 or shoot us an email at drshow at wamu.org. Stay with us.
Decius Daily. Decius Daily. Decius Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Welcome back. I'm Susan Page of USA Today, sitting in for Diane Reem. And now we're joined by phone from Sydney, journalist Ben Doherty of Guardian Australia. He's been reporting for more than a year on the plight of asylum seekers housed by the Australian government on the remote Pacific island of Nauru. Ben, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Susan. You were given documents detailing the conditions at this detention center on this island. Tell us what you've learned. Look, the the Nauru files have been um, particularly revelatory around uh, the nature, I suppose, of the conditions of of this uh, detention centre, where there's, um, at the moment, about 1,200 asylum seekers and refugees, uh, I suppose, held or warehoused by Australia on this this tiny Pacific island. Um, We've been hearing for for quite a while, for uh, a couple of years now, about the conditions in detention. We've had whistleblowers from inside... Um, we've had uh, doctors and psychiatrists uh, and, and, and people who've worked in that um, sort of detailing uh, levels of abuse, levels of sexual abuse of children, physical abuse of children, uh, women and men, um, the, the privation of, 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 of living there, um, widespread self-harm and suicide attempts. And I suppose what's been uh, truly dramatic about these documents, and we're, we're talking about a very large case of documents, about 2,000 separate incident reports, um, about 8,000 pages detailing about 18 months on this island, um, just shows uh, a, 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 a huge range of problems of, of uh, those problems. I was talking about the, the sexual and physical abuse of people, um, uh, basic uh, facilities not working, no toilets, an absence of food, inadequate medical care, um, serious mental health problems, uh, in, endemic, um, almost uh, self-harm and, uh, and, 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 and suicide by, by people on the island. And I think the thing that's, that's most powerful about these documents is that these are these are not the words of advocates or refugees or journalists, but these are the words of um, of the regime itself. These are the incident reports compiled by security guards and other people inside these, these detention centres. Reports of parents trying to kill themselves in hopes that if their children were orphaned, they would be ta- allowed to to go to Australia. Why is Australia keeping mm-hmm. these asylum seekers at this remote island? This is part of Australia's uh, sort of suite of, of asylum policies, and they've been very, very controversial, um, which include intercepting boats that are of, of asylum seekers who are trying to get to Australia and pushing them back to other countries, um, and people who do reach Australia uh, by boat to claim asylum, even if they are found to be genuine refugees um, in, in legal obliga- in uh, legal entitlement to, to protection, they're sent to remote islands to detention camps for in in what many cases and has been described by the United Nations as arbitrary detention, as indefinite detention. People can be warehoused there. Uh, There are are people who've been there more than three years on Nauru, which is a tiny remote Pacific island um, that was a former protector of Australia um, and is very beholden to Australia for aid money um, and is basically serving as a uh, a, a, a detention centre. And the Australian government has as a very firm and loudly proclaimed policy that people, these people will never 
reach Australia. So they, it's not like they can get processed there and move on to Australia, even if they're found to be uh, refugees that meet the international standard? No. Uh, about 98% of the people that Australia has sent to Nauru have been found to be refugees to meet that international refuge, uh, that standard of a well-founded fear of persecution. But they are never moved to uh, to Australia, and that's a, uh, that's, uh, a, a policy the government's very adamant about. The government talks about resettlement in, in, a, in a third country somewhere else, um, but that, at, at this stage, has not eventuated. They've managed to resettle one person in Cambodia in Southeast Asia, but, but there, there, there is no sort of pathway for, for res- resettlement for these people. And where, where have they come from? Uh, look, these people are a, a pretty broad cohort. There, are, there is a, a significant Tamil population from the north of, of Sri Lanka. There are Iranians, uh, Afghans, Syrians... Um, uh, uh, Burmese, uh, Rohingya people from uh, Myanmar, from Rakhine State in Myanmar. So they, these are people who've come from all over, almost and, and exclusively have, have travelled by boat, usually through Indonesia, um, to to reach Australia and 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 fall within, um, I, I suppose, Australia's custody. Uh, they, they've either reached reached Australia or been intercepted by um, uh, the Australian Navy or the Australian Border Force, which is the agency which patrols Australia's borders. And Ben, just one last question: these these uh, these leaked documents that document mm. the horrific conditions there. What's been the reaction in Australia? Is it going to prompt any kind of furor or a change in policy? Look, there, there, there is a growing and, and pressing public call for a, a royal commission uh, and an and independent inquiry into these circumstances. Certainly, the parliament, on the basis of evidence of, of whistleblowers who's come forward before, has has has, uh, has investigated the detentions here. But but really, uh, nothing has has yet sort of sparked a change in policy. However, the, the reaction to the publication of the Nauru files has, has brought, I, I suppose, a groundswell of broader public support. Um, and it will be interesting. There is a newly re-elected government here in Australia, um, and this will be one of the first um, great tests I, I, I expect this government how it manages this situation because there is growing public unrest, um, particularly with uh, sort of very noticeable uh, acts of self-harm and suicide. There was an incident recently where an Iranian refugee uh, doused himself in petrol um, and set himself on fire, and he. he um, ultimately died on Nauru, but that was a very graphic um, uh, incident that, that, again, sparked headlines in Australia. So this is uh, an issue of, of, of growing concern um, in this country. Ben Doherty, thank you so much for joining us on the Diane Reem Show. Thanks very much, Susan. Ben Doherty, he's a reporter with The Guardian Australia. He joined us by phone from Sydney. You know, talking about uh, the reaction in Australia, let's talk about the reaction here in this country to our presidential campaign. We had 50 Republican national security experts signing an open letter this week that saying the Republican nominee, Donald Trump, would put the U.S. security at risk. At least this is I can't think of another uh, political occasion like this before that where we've had the. Uh, some of the best-known national security experts of a party saying the election of their party's nominee would be a dangerous thing. That's right. And you have some, you know, cabinet-level officials, among the most prominent, Michael Hayden, um, who was a former director of the CIA and the National Security Agency, John Nagropani, who was the DNI, um, Bob Zellick, who was... Um, held several um, several positions. Now, this is kind of built on a letter that came out in March talking about um, 
by a lot about 100 national security officials that voiced opposition to Trump at the time. And that was more about his policies and some of the things he were talking about. But I spoke to one of the people that uh, drafted the letter. This is John Bellinger, the former um, chief legal advisor to Condoleezza Rice. And he said that, you know, ever since Trump's comments about uh, abandoning NATO, the, the uh, his criticism of the Conf and Goldstar families um, during the convention, that this is more now about his temperament, that this is kind of echoing what Hillary Clinton, in fact, said, that, that Donald Trump doesn't necessarily have the temperament to be um, – to be uh, the commander in chief, and they basically say that he would he would in fact be dangerous for U.S. national security. I think one of the most interesting things about this letter is that, <clears throat> uh, despite the fact that none of the li- former living Republican secretaries That's of state right. have signed it uh, or or did sign it, virtually the entire inner circle of Condoleezza Rice's. Uh, uh, you know her her inner circle who when she was at the state department and also at the nsc before you know uh, has signed it her chief of staff at least just mentioned uh, bob zelick uh, and uh, john bellinger um her uh, her chief of staff brian gunderson has signed this letter and you know looking at the tea leaves here one wonders if condoleezza rice herself is not uh, what well, you know? What she thinks? Will she sign on? And uh, and if she does, uh, as all of her inner circle has, when will it be? Do Do you think she will? I think I don't. The, you don't. You don't? How come no. at least? I think that you yeah. know, I think well, reading the tea leaves is what you know. Washington. Uh, I think you you've seen Colin Powell. He came out for President Obama, but I think you've uh, you know at the time, um, you know Condoleezza Rice has been very kind of measured about you know, over the years, what what she's willing to speak out on. And and you've seen like, yes, these are some people that, you know, were part of the the Bush, um, you know, foreign policy kind of brain trust. I, I think she's I could be wrong and, and I'll eat my words if I do. But I think she's going to keep her own counsel and and not say anything, because a lot of conservatives of that level feel that it could actually help Donald Trump. If they come out, because don't forget, Donald Trump has, you know, come to his rise is fueled by this whole anti-establishment, um, you know, affection. And so for a Condoleezza Rice or a James Baker, um, a real beloved secretary of state to come out and um, say something negative against Donald Trump, I think that they might feel that that could could actually um, fuel his his um his rise. But I think what's really interesting here, and we've seen over the last week about Donald Trump's comments about uh, whether it's Obama founding, President Obama being the founder of ISIS, or the fact that this Iranian nuclear scientist was killed because of Hillary Clinton's hacked emails. I think what the Trump campaign and Donald Trump in particular is missing is an opportunity to you know, talk about legitimate criticisms of the Obama administration's foreign policy. uh, Secretary Clinton has, you know, campaigned on being the keeper of that policy. And by some of this rhetoric and by some of this, you know, you know, outrageous statements, I think they're missing a real opportunity um, to gain the upper hand on foreign policy. We don't see any substantive talk from the Trump campaign on foreign policy. It's just more, you know, kind of hitting them with with really killing them with their fiery rhetoric, I guess. Don Goodman, what do you hear from national security experts outside the United States when it comes to looking at this American presidential campaign? Well, um, 
They're fascinated by the American presidential campaign. They're fascinated by Donald Trump. And they really find it very difficult to understand. And that's why we hear concern from, from all over the globe regarding um, Donald Trump, the, the possibility that Donald Trump will become a, a president, especially from, from European circles, of course, because of uh, um, his positions regarding NATO, um, uh, because uh, um, uh, his views seem to be unclear on so many issues. And, of course, this uh, chumminess with uh, Vladimir Putin that also uh, raised some eyebrows in Europe uh, and, of course, in the Middle East uh, as well. Um, What's the question so, you hear most when you talk to diplomats or uh, officials uh, from outside the United States? Well, two things. First of all, can it really happen? Is this really serious? The other thing is that they're really trying to understand who is the circle that's, that surrounds mm-hmm. Donald Trump in terms of foreign policy. And this goes back to this uh, um, letter as well. If all these Republican um, foreign policy establishment people are turning their back on Donald Trump, who will, who will be his, uh, his closest circle and who, of advisors? How do you answer, do you answer that? Who do that, you say that, that right be? now he doesn't have. That right now he's not uh, um, taking advice from too many people. And some of the advisors that have, you know, he's pointed to, a lot of people he says that he's talked to, you know, Kissinger, for instance. I mean, someone like Henry Kissinger is not advising him. Some of the advisors are not even terribly well known. Um, you know, some of them ha- we've seen have had... Um, you know, previous dealings with Russia are very cozy with Russia. So there's been a lot of talk about that. But there are not, again, he's not, he's running on an anti-establishment campaign. And so the people in the forum, the keepers of that information are not advising him. And that's concerning to a lot of people. I'm Susan Page, and you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. We're taking your calls, 1-800-433-8850. Let's go to Mark. He's calling us from Jacksonville, Florida. Hi, Mark. Hi. Do you have a comment or a question? Oh, yes. Uh, Again, back to what was mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, Trump's uh, uh, accusing uh, President Obama of being a founder of ISIS. Under the Iraqi parliamentary system of government set up during the U.S. occupation, uh, the the Shiite caucus in the parliament elects the head, of, the head of the government because they're the largest religious group by population. The Sunni caucus elects the number two man, and the Kurdish caucus elects the number three man. Now, the head of the government met with President Obama in the White House, and when he got back to Iraq, he charged the number two man with murder. He, he, the number two man, the, head, the senior Sunni in the government, then fled the country to avoid being executed. And at that point, I said to my wife that the... Uh, the president and the secretary of state should publicly and repeatedly state that unless he is replaced by the Sunni caucus in the parliament within 30 days, there won't be any way to hold the country together and we're going to cut off support to the national government. Uh, The White House and the State Department and our ambassador over there, uh, they they kept quiet mm-hmm. while the head of the government purged the senior officials, not only from from right. the military as well. And and uh, so Mark- leaving it open for yeah. ISIL to take over, and the Sunnis just gave them the keys to the tanks and, and the ammunition dumps and everything because at that point it was no longer a national government. Uh, All right, go, Matt that, wants to that, weigh in that, here. Yeah, well, that's not an in, 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 it's not an an invalid comment, but let's remember that 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 was just one part, that's just one piece of the puzzle. The depathification that took place during the Bush administration after the invasion and the takeover uh, had had essentially the same effect, 
and uh, and and led to the uh, origin of uh, uh, of what became ISIL. So there is plenty of blame to go around here, but saying that someone is the the founder um, is not factual. Well, certainly um, some of the sectarianism that you saw under the former Prime Minister al-Maliki gave rise to a lot of uh, extremist attacks, and, and that certainly helped, you know, the, those seedlings of ISIS to kind of grow, as did, you know, look, the Bush administration did not negotiate a status of forces agreement with the Iraqi government at the time. President Obama came in and said, oh, well, we don't have a status of forces agreement. He, that administration did not try very hard to keep U.S. troops in Iraq. And so, as Matt said, there's plenty of blame to go around. However, I think, yes, there are people that want to blame Bush and there are people that want to blame Obama. But you know, at some point, the statute of limitations on the Bush policy end and the policies that President Obama pick up um, are also contributing to it. But I think, again, what I what I was saying before is these are legitimate criticisms about the Obama administration's policies in Iraq that by just saying, oh, Obama is the founder of ISIS, you know, do not really, you know, give credence to the legitimate arguments of the of the problems of the policy. And I think that um, the Trump campaign is really missing an opportunity here. Actually, Trump had an opportunity yesterday in an interview to try to put uh, this comment in a broader context of, of uh, the political void that was created, the vacuum that was uh, in, in Iraq after the withdrawal of American forces. But he insisted, no, um, that he means literally that um, uh, President Obama is uh, um, ISIS's MVP and that he's a founder <laughs> of ISIS. But just maybe one quick comment. Um, how does this come out in the Middle East? The Middle East is fighting against ISIS, and now America is being accused of founding founding this organization. And, of course, Trump this morning tweeted that he was being sarcastic in talking about President Obama as a founder of ISIS. Well, Mark, I know you had to stay on the line a long time before you got in the air. Thanks for your patience. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the situation with Ukraine and Russia increasingly alarming to some analysts. And we'll take your calls and questions. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Susan Page of USA Today, sitting in for Diane Rehm. It's the international hour of our Friday News Roundup, and I'm joined in the studio by Natan Gutman, the Washington correspondent for Channel One Israeli News and The Forward, and Elise Labatt, she's the global affairs correspondent for CNN, and Matthew Lee, diplomatic writer with the Associated Press. Well, Natan, Ukraine's troops are on high alert this week. Russia accused the country of launching an attack on Crimea. What is happening there? Well, what we're seeing in Crimea in, in the past week or so is what seems to be like a manufactured conflict on, on behalf of, of Moscow. Moscow is ramping up tension in Crimea. After a couple of years of relative uh, quiet there, because we've seen after the annexation of Crimea that uh, um, the battleground basically shifted to eastern Ukraine. And now they're, they're shifting it back to Ukraine with claims that uh, um, um, Ukraine forces killed uh, an, an agent of the of the FSB, of the um, uh, Russian uh, um, Secret Service or, or the intelligence forces, and another soldier there. Basically, they're accusing the um, Ukrainian government of terrorism. Um, 
each one of the sides is ramping up their forces, having these military exercises, calling in, in, in urgent consultations of, of, with the military. So definitely we see the tension growing there. And the trigger is this, uh, uh, these reports of the killing of, of two Russians there. But it seems to be that someone, at least in Moscow, has an interest in increasing the tension there. The U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, among others, has disputed Russia's claims. Elise, why would Russia want to foment a crisis here? Well, uh, the Ukrainians believe it's to as a pretext to increase escalation. And others believe, including the United States, that he's trying to get you know, the kind of upper hand on, you know, peace negotiations, um, already peace talks that were scheduled for the sideline of the upcoming G20 um, meeting have been scrapped. And now Putin is saying that, you know, talks would be pointless. So clearly he's trying to get an upper hand in some way, whether that's a pretext for, you know, further military incursions or just trying to, you know, gain more of a strategic advantage in terms of any kind of outcome, I think, remains to be seen. What's NATO's reaction, Matt? NATO's reaction is to look on very, very nervously. You know, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but it uh, may potentially have aspirations to join. Um, If it were to move that route, uh, then there would be a serious – it would be a serious thing because uh, NATO, along with the rest of the West, has not uh, uh, recognized uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. and so threats uh, against Ukraine and um, its territory post the Crimea annexation are viewed with great alarm uh, in Brussels by, by NATO. And that's despite the fact that it's not a member. It borders NATO countries and it, uh, uh, it has expressed a desire to lean in the, in the direction of the West. So, you know, it's a, a game of brinksmanship, I think, at the... Uh, at this point. What would the West likely do if Russia made additional moves into Ukraine? It's very hard, to, very hard to say. I mean, uh, there would be no, it's, there's no treaty obligation to come to Ukraine's defense because it is not a, a member of NATO. Um, it's, you know, I, I think that the the West is basically stuck between a rock and a hard place here if there were to be uh, such a move. Look at what they did with Crimea. Nothing. Uh, they imposed sanctions, which have not shown any sign of changing uh, President Putin's uh, behavior. May show Russia's increasing confidence that it can push the edge of the envelope. We also saw Natan Vladimir Putin meet with the president of Turkey. They've had a bad relationship in the past. A better one now? Well, it seems so. Yeah, the relationship went sour after the um, uh, Turkish uh, forces uh, uh, shot down a. Uh, a Russian uh, warplane that was uh, on, on mission uh, in Syria and, and entered Turkish uh, airspace. Uh, and that led to a very harsh response from uh, on behalf of the Russians in cutting the also important uh, in tourism packages of, of uh, Russian tourists uh, to, to Turkey, in economic sanctions, in putting on hold the joint energy project. And now basically Erdogan, <clears throat> after this process of, of uh, um, recovering and healing, and he got this very warm phone call from uh, Putin after the, the attempted coup, um, he travels and he meets with Putin, and they seem to try to um, 
um, paper over the differences and kind of open a new page, even though there are clearly um, differences regarding their uh, policy towards uh, Syria. Um, Putin would like to see Assad uh, maintain power in some uh, way, and of course Erdogan is against that. But still, uh, um, this, when, when you look at this in the context of uh, um, also of what Putin is doing in Crimea and in Ukraine right now, these are all attempts basically by Putin to increase his uh, his uh, realm of, of influence. And sometimes you do it by military uh, force or, or hints of military force uh, in Ukraine to make sure that they stay closer to, to Russia and further from the West. And sometimes you do it by negotiating and having these uh, diplomatic overtures with Turkey to make sure that they're in your circle as well. But this is what Putin is doing. Well, and uh, also... Um you know, look, Erdogan is feeling increasingly lonely right now after this coup. Um, he's, you know, the administration and the uh, the West and Europe is very concerned about this increasing authoritarian crackdown. Um, there's a lot of anti-American sentiment right now. So who does he turn to? Vladimir Putin that understands his frustrations with the West. And now, you know, he's trying to bring Erdogan into the fold. You already heard the Turks maybe now suggesting that they would agree on Russia's request to close the border with Syria, that are they're going to share intelligence on Syria. This is very concerning. And you saw NATO come out this week with a very interesting statement calling Turkey a very valued ally, talking about how important Turkey is to the alliance. And that shows and reflects the concern they have with this cozying, this new bromance between <laughs> uh, Erdogan and Putin. I, I think you're, it, this rapprochement, if in fact it uh, progresses, and I think that there's some degree of skepticism about whether or not uh, Putin is playing Erdogan as he has with so many other people. But it is extraordinary. Let's not forget that after the Russian plane was shut down by the Turks, the Russian government and media went on a huge campaign against Erdogan, accusing his son of, run, of buying oil from – and his government of buying oil from ISIS and making – you know, supporting terrorism, the very things that now they say they're both doing. And so I think that there is this degree of skepticism that I mentioned that, uh, you know, cooperate – the Russians will – may agree to cooperate with the Turks, but what does that actually mean when it comes down to it? Do they, in fact, share the same goals? The U.S. has been trying to increase its cooperation uh, with Russia for some time, and Russia has said uh, yes, uh, but we haven't seen it. We've heard a lot for, about Vladimir Putin on the campaign trail here in the United States this year. Does that have any effect? You know, Donald Trump has said that uh, cited Vladimir Putin as a as a strong leader, talked about him with some favorable language. Does that have an effect, do you think, internationally on what Russia figures it's, it can well, do? Well, you saw this uh, very interesting op-ed by the former um, CIA director, Mike Morrell, saying that he believes that, and, and there are others in the intelligence community, believe that Putin is kind of playing Trump as, you know, a, a kind of intelligence operation because he sees, you know, that, that this talk about, you know, how important Russia is and how he wants to be best friends is is kind of working and he's using his propaganda and his media to kind of incur favor as he is other right wing parties across Europe. And so, you know, I think Putin is able to read the tea leaves and he's he's very smart in terms of trying to 
target people that he feels he can manipulate and at the same time that are um, amenable to his position. Let, let, let's also remember that what the, the policy that Trump says he was pursue towards Russia was, well, I can't win. Wouldn't it be a good thing if we were friends with Russia? Well, that's exactly what the Obama administration tried to do in its first term. So I think that, that yeah, you have to look at the, ret- the the return on the investment of the first uh, uh, term reset with Russia has not been very good and has not been a very good one. Let's go to St. Petersburg, Florida, and talk to Shady. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my inquiry is basically with the Russians' behavior lately. And, you know, I recently the Russians had sent a drone into northern Israel uh, pretty provocatively. Uh, several miles into Israel, the Israelis made several attempts to try to shoot it down and were unsuccessful, and it made its way back to uh, to Syria. But it seems as though the Russians are, are playing a really interesting game, um, not just in Ukraine, but in the Middle East as well, almost as if to test um, American technology in Israel to, to some degree and in the Ukraine itself. Um, my question is, do you see that this uh, is going to be getting worse uh, with the political future, the way we are, whether it's Trump or whether it's Hillary, um, do you think it's going to get possibly even worse than it is now? My short answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we talk, talk about your larger question, Natan, tell us more about this this incident with Israel. Well, basically, Israel is seeing this uh, spillover of the Syrian uh, civil war into the Golan Heights and into its uh, territory for a while already. And, and most of it is inadvertent. Most of it is just... Uh, uh, um, having fighting so close to the border means that uh, some things are going to fly by. And this is mostly how Israelis view this uh, drone incident. Uh, um, although it, it is uh, um, very unusual for, for Russian drones to, to appear uh, in the theater uh, uh, that close to the Israeli border. Um, definitely there is uh, a concern among Israelis that, uh, um, on the one hand, there is a pretty good working relationship between Netanyahu and Putin, and they seem to be able to, to have a, a, an understanding on the tactical level. On the other hand, um, the presence of uh, and the actions of uh, Russia in Syria are supporting the Hezbollah, which is on Assad's side, and is Israel's major concern uh, in its northern border. border. Shadi, thanks so much for your call. It's terrible news out of Pakistan this week where there was a targeted killing of lawyers. Of course, lawyers are a fundamental part of a successful civil society. Um, Elise, tell us about this attack. Well, this was in Balochistan, which is really one of um, Pakistan's largest and poorest regions. And there was a suicide bomber that killed 70 people, wounded 100 more um, on Monday. And these... um, in an attack on mourners gathered um, in a hospital for another attack. And a large number of lawyers had traveled to the area. Now, you know, this is seen as a very corrupt area. Um, Lawyers are constantly the targets of assassination attempts because they're the ones that are trying to fight against some of this corruption. They're the ones trying to um, help bring light to it. And they're involved in a lot of suits. And so what, you know, some of the human rights activists have said that a whole generation of kind of lawyers working on this, on these corruption issues in Pakistan, um, were wiped out. And, and it's very unclear, um, the kind of ties that the groups has to larger extremist groups like ISIS. Um, this is a, a, a faction of the uh, Pakistani Taliban, 
Um, and it's unclear. They've kind of flirted with ISIS here and there. So it, it we know that it's this one group, Jamaat al-Ahar, but we don't know what their current allegiance is. Is it to the Taliban or is it to ISIS? It's a devastating attack, and it's, a, you know, it's, it's really hard to underestimate the, the impact, not just on the current generation, as Elise noted, that, of, of lawyers who have been killed, uh, but for more coming up through the ranks uh, in law schools. It's 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 a bad situation. I'm Susan Page, and you're listening to the Diane Ream Show. We've got a pair of emails. Let me let me read them. The first one is a comment that was posted on our website. This person writes. The international community and the Syrians need to quit putting off doing something productive. Each delay puts international security at risk because the international terrorism conflict is breeding is beyond horrific for the Syrians, horrible for the region and for the world at large. And we got an email from William who writes us from Webster Groves, Missouri. He writes, I'm a big fan of President Obama's, but I could not help wondering far back in time before Russia escalated its role in the Syrian conflict that the U.S. could have made surgical strikes destroying only Assad's helicopters without boots on the ground, thus preventing him from using these barrel bombs against his own people. I think many many people would probably share this uh, criticism now in hindsight, this extra caution that uh, Obama um, demonstrated when dealing with uh, Syria eventually didn't pay off. Uh, um, uh, and there are those who say, well, nothing else worked either. You know, We tried uh, being active in Libya, look where Libya is now. We tried uh, um, staying outside of it uh, altogether in, uh, in Egypt, look where Egypt, uh, look what happened there in terms of democracy. So there is no good solution or easy solution. Although just given the the magnitude of the Syrian tragedy, it seems that even on a moral level, even if it, it wouldn't work out well, it was worth a try. And I think this is probably one of the things that uh, Obama would have to deal with as part of his legacy after he leaves the White House. You know, you look at the moral level at this, what's going on now, and it just seems as though the world isn't responding in the way that history, that history will judge harshly the way the world is responding now. Well, a lot of people say that Syria will be President Obama's Rwanda to president that was for President Clinton. I mean, I think I don't think it's for lack of discussing what the options were, but President Obama kind of came into office very um, against getting the U.S. entangled into wars. He's done a lot more militarily than than he wanted to. But you know, the 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 thing is. All of the things that President Obama had said he feared would happen if the U.S. got more militarily involved, um, additional humanitarian catastrophe, rise of extremism, has happened. And so it's hard to say what would have happened um, had he got more involved, but it certainly can't be worse than it is now. Let's go on a less tragic note and talk about the Olympics. I'm sure we've all been watching the gold medals pile up for Americans. No offense, Natan. I'm sure Israel is doing fine, too. <laughs> not, not really, but... Is there... <laughs> well, is... I think you got at least one. No? One bronze. Yeah. One bronze. Well, okay. Go. So you're on the board. Yeah. Uh, you're 120th of Michael Phelps. <laughs> is, there, is there a geopolitical aspect, Matt, to the Olympics? Uh, yes, of course there is. And we saw that spill over into the swimming competition and the allegations of r- Russian doping. Uh, Booing of one of the con- of one of the Russians. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the, and the criticism uh, of her launched by uh, an American swimmer, which, you know, uh, people had been kind of shying away from this. But that really brought it out into the uh, in- into the spotlight. And of course, the Olympics, although they are supposed to be non-political 
always end up having some kind of a political uh, uh, aspect. But on the opposite end of that, I think one of the um, moments that kind of reverberated on Twitter was this selfie between the North Korean and South Korean gymnasts. I mean, obviously, those countries are, are at war. Um, but that kind of one moment of sportsmanship and, you know, I think really reflected what the games are supposed to be about. And so that was really one moment where geopolitics was put aside in the in the um, in absence of just being more sportsmanlike. I was wondering if the North Korean gymnasts could get in trouble back home for posing for that selfie. Pro- I, they, probably, could, they could. Yeah. They could. But I mean, I think the kind of. Um, you know, this epitomizes mm-hmm. what the goodwill of the games is all about. And, and um, I think, uh, I, I don't think they'll get in trouble. I, I don't know. Let's hope not. Elise Labatt from CNN, Matthew Lee from the Associated Press, Natan Gutman from Channel One Israeli News in the Forward. Thank you all for being with us this hour on the Diane Reem Show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I'm Susan Page of USA Today, sitting in for Diane Reem. Thanks for listening. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewinskis.